Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. Hello, this is Ken Root. Back in 1999, when I was doing AgriTalk, I talked to the executive director of the North Carolina Tobacco Growers Association, Graham Boyd. Now, the tobacco industry in the United States goes back 400 years, growing a legal crop. But in 1999, the year I talked to him, all that was about to end. The reason for tobacco's downfall in the U.S. was primarily because of the health effects of smoking and the money states could get by suing the big tobacco companies. Caught in all of this was the tobacco farmer, Now, since the Midwest has not grown much tobacco, this may seem irrelevant to our agriculture, but my North Carolina guest thinks differently. In this segment, recorded just this week, he describes what happened when tobacco farmers lost much of their market, but how the federal government made a huge windfall as they regulated the crop. He also cautions that no agricultural commodity is exempt from the public or the government deciding it should be regulated or banned. But in a bit of irony, he describes how the public is expanding its use of marijuana. Smoke is smoke, he says. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Back in 1999, the AgriTalk show touched on a very significant topic for tobacco farmers. And we went to the heart of tobacco country in the United States, that being North Carolina. We talked with two growers and the executive of their association, Mr. Graham Boyd. Mr. Boyd is on the phone with me now and it is 2023. So in effect, 24 years since we have spoken, Mr. Boyd. How are you, sir? I am doing well, and that's a pretty alarming statistic you just gave, 24 years. (laughs) Well, you have been a long-time executive of that association, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it shows me some hope, because in 1999, your growers were really crying the blues in a situation that I think all of our listeners should realize it can happen to any commodity, any legal product that happens to fall out of favor for health reasons or social reasons or others. And I just wanted to ask you to update us a bit on what's happened since that period of time. Now, let me capsulize it, and then you correct okay. me if you want to add to it. Okay. At that point in '99 you were facing the potential loss of a tobacco market and allotments and a lot of other things that went with it in the number one tobacco producing state in the country because there had been a settlement 
by attorneys general from across the country dealing with um, smoking and health, but there was the potential in that $206 billion settlement that the tobacco companies were going to make with all of the states that some of that would go to the growers. But your growers weren't sure they were going to get a dime of it. What happened? I would add to your framework that what was happening is the companies were being sued individually. So the the master settlement agreement, we'll call it MSA from this point forward, the MSA was designed for the remaining 42 states to enter, and that would abate future uh, litigation uh, being brought forward over whatever allegations of liability of smoking-related um, uh, impacts, concerns, and that type of thing. So uh, in that deal, the, the concern for the farmer began that, okay, this is going to be paid through a user fee that will be collected at point of sale and go to the U.S. Treasury for disbursement back to the states, all 42 participating states, not discounting people having whatever health concerns uh, uh, surround uh, tobacco products. Let's call this what it really was at that point. It was a money grab by states, and it was based on, um, well, that was their enticement. Their interest in it was, whoa, we'll get, you know, based on population, uh, we'll get a pro rata amount annually adjusted for consumption and inflation. So um, states like North Carolina at that time, for example, stood to receive about $4 billion a year. So that's how that uh, was broken into that arrangement. And the concern be- became, what if demand goes completely to zero? We just didn't know what it was going to do to the marketplace and what it was going going to do to demand, as it would it would create a substantial increase in the price of a pack of cigarettes, as an example, and other tobacco products being sold at retail space. So that was the the reason for concern, is that it was going to immediately cause a reduction in demand for U.S. grown tobacco. What has taken place since then? And, and let me personalize it here, and you don't need to be extremely deep in your in your analysis, but Jimmy Lee was a, uh activist, I would say, tobacco grower, and mm-hmm. Donnie Smith was as well at the time. Do you know how they have fared and other tobacco growers in North Carolina since I have not seen Jimmy Lee in many, many years. I know that he stopped growing tobacco uh, shortly after the, the federal tobacco buyout that happened in 2004, which was a federal decoupling of the quota from the land, which was a, a very probably our greatest achievement of or objective of achievement uh, as an organization in our 40-year, 40 41-year history now. He lived in the Wake County area, which is Raleigh. Raleigh is in Wake County. And I think Raleigh is the second large, fastest growing city in the United States at this moment. Like 100,000 people a year are moving into Raleigh. Urban sprawl and a lot of, of, of other transitions happening that I think he got into some um, development, you know, land development, land clearing. Thing, you know, he sort of repurposed a lot of his, his equipment. And the last time, time I saw him, you know, he was doing some some commercial work in that side. Um but that's been a while, so I, I don't, I can't give you a current update. Sorry, but well, let me say broadly, when you say what happened to other tobacco farmers in 1999, uh, when you and I spoke, we had as an organization about 14,000 active tobacco growers in North Carolina and over 100,000 people that owned tobacco quota. 
which were the which was the uh, licensing right to to have tobacco produced on your on your farm land. It was assigned to land. Today we have in 2023 in our organization we have about 2,200, 2, uh, somewhere in the 22, 2300 are the active growers on the roster. And in 99, when you and I would have had a conversation, there were 14,000. So a lot of them have exited. But in the in the interim of that, uh, the Tobacco Court of Biota in 2004 was specifically intended to help people either transition away from growing tobacco or retire from it altogether. And it largely was effective uh, at that objective. I would say to you that uh, 75% of the grower base exited tobacco production, tobacco farming, uh, once the, the tobacco biota was achieved in October of 2004. What has been the change that you've seen in the farms there? Have they found another crop to fill in for tobacco, uh, or has the economy just grown to the point that the growers got bigger uh, that stayed in and the, and the small ones got out and life went on? Yes, to all your uh, references there. Um, all of the above have, have occurred, and, and again, you can find um, status quo, and you can find uh, new revelations. Uh, all of those uh, scenarios have played themselves out sort of in concert. By and large, uh, many people uh, sold their tobacco-specific asset, things like a carousel planter or a tobacco greenhouse or tobacco curing barn. You know, those those farm infrastructures were specific to that crop. Tractors and disc and things of this nature, you know, equipment, it has diverse application. They're used in, in all the crops, row crops on, on the farm, let's say. One of the things that has occurred in the 24 years since our conversation is a, a, a steady expansion into livestock and animal ag, particularly poultry, turkeys, chickens, and then pork. We've seen that evolve as a as a crop diversification, even though it's not one you plant in the ground. But with that has come a, a stable need for uh, feed grain pro- crops, uh, whether that's corn, soy, or small grain, for the a concentration of livestock here in, in the uh, North Carolina area. So that has been good for the regions in the east that can obtain good yields with those kind of commodities. So you saw some tobacco farmers in places like Beaufort County or Greene County or Washington County, the far eastern fringe, you know, sell barns and say, we're going to concentrate on growing cotton, corn, beans, wheat, these kinds of things. Uh, and particularly in that era, a cotton made a resurgence and it had some, it had some attractive pricing. And so there was a, at one point, there was uh, an impressive amount of cotton, you know, and of course, it, that, that's a commodity that ebbs and flows on, on the market. Sweet potatoes has been one that's continued to be an expansive crop and a lucrative crop for uh, farmers, and it, it marries well into the crop ro- rotation. Uh, you, it's a labor-intensive commodity, uh, and its harvest schedule tends to fall behind the tobacco harvest. Uh, so does it on the front side. The planting cycle can be uh, very uh, well-coordinated. So the, le- the guest worker labor force, it gives them a full capacity of, of uh of employment uh, schedule of work. That's been one. Uh, we've seen other uh, expansion into vegetable and produce uh, since you would have visited in this space uh, some years ago. So we're seeing more and more of that. Think about where North Carolina is located on the, on the eastern seaboard relative to population from Miami to, to New York. 
So I, I see more and more, you know, specialty area broccoli and squash and lettuce and cabbage, cucumber. You see, in, you know, quite a bit of that. Of course, Mount Olive is based in in um, Duplin County. Uh, they are one of the largest pickle uh, um, contract entities in the world, and a lot of cucumbers are being grown for pickling. And again, that works well in a in a tobacco crop rotation, similar kind of soil, hand harvested commodity. And so we've seen those diversifications happen uh, along in that period of time. Farms got larger in scope, generally speaking, which was part of your question. Uh, I think in, in the 99 to 2004 era, which 99 was the master settlement, 2004 was the eventual achievement of a tobacco quota buyout. So if you look at that six to seven year range of time, probably the average size tobacco farm in North Carolina was 30 acres. Today, I would tell you it's 75 to 100. You did see consolidation, but it's also economy of scale, Ken. In order to make the same kind of return with the ratcheting cost of inputs on a, either per pound or, or per acre basis, what we <clears throat> have observed is that a farmer who can make a decent uh, return and a, and a good living off of 50 acres, he now maybe needs 100 to, 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 achieve, to achieve the same kind of net return to the farming operation. So. Right. That's occurred, um, but that's not just uh, limited to tobacco. I think that's all of agriculture. So, you know, it's fuel prices and input prices and everything continue to ratchet, and our biggest input cost is labor. This is something of a cautionary tale, as I see it, for everybody in agriculture. I mean, for 400 years, tobacco was grown in this country. You could say it was the reason that the country was able to become independent. And then... We went through a period of time where that people began to question it, and then we been, went through a time where government regulated it. In the lifetime of most of anybody who's an adult today, we've seen a major change in the cost of cigarettes and a major effort to try to stop people from using tobacco. But let me turn it toward beef, for example. Fat might at some time be regulated. Cows may be regulated. And it's nothing the grower did, but it's everything that government does. Can you give us your learned philosophy of, of how to deal with something that comes out of nowhere for you? Well, Ken, yes, tobacco has been controversial for a period of time. And what really hurt uh, tobacco in 1994 were a, a lineup of executives that uh, – uh, I'll use a common term of uh, didn't tell the complete truth before a panel in Congress about what they knew on the addictive properties of, of nicotine. Nicotine is not a, a carcinogen. Nicotine is a stimulant, so it's a drug like caffeine or anything else. So that uh, that sort of put in, into motion, you know, an attack on an industry. And the reason is it, it is attacked is because of the the lucrative. Uh, appeal. The tobacco industry is, has, uh, has been profitable. So that's why a lot of the litigation, et cetera. I, I am a, a open-minded, uh, freedom of choice type of uh, observer of these lifestyles of activities. For example, on more than one occasion, I've jumped out of an airplane at 12,000 feet. That's not a wise, necessarily, uh, a risk uh, decision, but it's an exciting one. You're free to do that. You know, if you want to bungee jump off tall bridges or things, as long as you don't endanger other people. What I'm saying is that uh, who in society today isn't aware of the 
risk associated perhaps of inhaling any kind of smoke. You don't want to stand over a charcoal grill and breathe all that smoke, but everyone's okay smoking marijuana, you know, today or, or uh, hemp or whatever, but let's not have tobacco. And the problem is there's not everyone that smokes dies from it. My dad will turn 91 next month, smoked since he went in the Navy. His lungs are fine. His health is good. He still drives himself to parties every morning to meet a crew of people to have a biscuit, you know, and so it's not an exclusive situation. I'm not discounting the health concerns. I personally choose not to smoke, but I think if someone else wants to, they should be allowed to. Okay, that's that's where I stand on that. But I'll tell you what I do uh, am guilty of. Too high sugar content in my diet, maybe too much fat in my food, and not enough exercise. How about those three things? And those are lifestyle choices. So, yes, I think high fructose corn syrup is one of those categories that people who uh, uh, could become um, uh, lumped in with accusations about it uh, because if you look at obesity, that is a serious problem in America. They're really, what is our pandemic? It's just, it's all over the news. And what are the health costs associated with just obesity or type 2 diabetes or type 3? Is type 3 now, which is dementia, cognitive, all this, this reference, is it really fueled by sugar? I mean, sugar is a major, <clears throat> major concern in the diet, and it's in everything that we access when you look at processed foods. So, you know, we, we've got this dynamic uh, that's out there. In the animal industry, your point about beef is, is certainly well warranted. I would say if you and I have this visit five years from now, it'll be interesting uh, in a podcast discussion to say, you know, we've, we brought up the topic about beef and livestock and would it be dietary, but what it's probably most likely going to be that the American beef industry is going to have prepare and arm itself to defend against is the, the I'm going to call it the cultural pressure of things like climate control and carbon sequestration and gas, so your, your Green New Deal. That's the pressure that's coming into that segment of agriculture. If you just watch the, the uh, show Yellowstone, the, the narrative is there. The entire argument, the pressure between uh, those who grow the product and those who un don't understand and believe that food comes from a grocery store, there is your next intersection of uh, public policy relative to food production. And in our state, the hog industry has been under great assault now, uh, and it's been being done in the courtroom. It's, it's all being litigated. There are billionaire activists who think that we uh, should not be growing uh, any any animal agriculture, or uh, nor should we be uh, uh, disturbing the land. But but at the same time, your food doesn't come from a grocery store. Uh, no farms, no food is a is a common slogan here in our state, and there's a balance in there. And so I, I worry about as we as we move into a society that is that has no that is more and more layer of removal from understanding agriculture. Two different points here, Ken. There's, there's education in agriculture, which is you and I, how do we farm, what's ag agronomy, you know, plant, soil science, and the rest. And then there's education about agriculture. And everyone needs to have some education about agriculture. There are activist groups organized that worry about labor, in particular child labor. And I support concerns and, 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 and the proper measurements to Make to ensure that we don't have an abuse of child labor anywhere in the world. And by the way, it's a big world. I just came back from South America last week. Um, culturally, things are different. If you visit the continent of Africa, 
you know, children are working there as a means of survival. But that doesn't mean it's it, that it should be proper. Um, but we got to understand cultures are different. Um, but tobacco is one where in the United States there's a lot of attention to, oh, children are working in the field and it's dangerous and it's, you know, indentured servitude and et cetera, et cetera. It just doesn't happen. I mean, it, can you find one example? There's always an example out there. But overwhelmingly, you know, we do not have a child labor problem in our commodity. These are all the social pressures that are going to, uh, that are going to bear cost in agriculture. Organic is one of those niches. People want organically grown, USDA certified products because it makes it feel like they're eating something that's healthier or better for them. Now, we won't get into the debate about whether that's accurate or not. I'll just say that they wanted organic eggs until they were $8 a dozen. And all of a sudden, at $8 per dozen, I can eat regular eggs. Follow me? And mm-hmm. so the health part's important to a up to a to a certain level. And I think that um, some of the other arguments are similar to that. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, who's the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. I've worked with them for the last 17 years and worn their hearing aids for that length of time, and I have had excellent results. Taylor, dementia is of concern of people as we get older, and I understand there are several modifiable risks that you can employ. Could you tell us about those? Yeah, sure can. And so the studies were done by Johns Hopkins, um, Stanford, Cambridge University, so world-renowned um, you know, research centers. And what they found was there are 12 risk factors that you can actually modify you know, in your life. Now, they broke it down by age under 45, 45 to 65, and 65 and above. Under the age of 45, proper education, so being well-educated, is the number one thing you can do under the age of 45. Between the age of 45 and 65, obesity, alcohol consumption, blood pressure, brain injury, and hearing loss. So between the age of 45 and 65 is actually the the number one thing you can do in that age bracket is actually treat your hearing loss. So it's not an age-related thing. So between 45 and 65, over 65, smoking, depression, social isolation, air pollution. And when you talk about air pollution, it's not just being out and about in a large city. There are actually carcinogens in a wood-burning stove that can lead to, one, hearing loss, but also um, things you can do for dementia. So it's not just out and about in large cities. Um, Lack of physical activity and diabetes. Um, It can actually prevent or delay up to 40% of the dementia cases by modifying these pieces. And when you look at all those 12 Nine of those are actually correlated to an untreated hearing loss. But the number one thing you can actually do out of all 12 and do it between the age of 45 and 65 is actually treat your hearing loss. So when they talk about hearing loss being a, a, a very important thing, treating your hearing loss is the most modifiable thing you can do to help offset dementia. And wearing hearing devices or treating your hearing loss can reduce dementia symptoms by up to 75%. So studies are showing not only that hearing loss plays a critical role in health conditions, you know, dementia being the the biggest one, but also treating your hearing loss is not the number one thing you can do um, to help with dementia. That is very interesting information. 
Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can call them at 877-955-4020. A good farmer will never forget 4020 as the last four digits. Or you can go online at iowahearing.com. Graham Boyd is the executive director of the North Carolina Tobacco Growers Association. We continue our discussion about what has happened to tobacco farmers and what might happen to other commodities and how marijuana legalization is a contradiction to that trend. One of the biggest developmental or evolutions of change in the 20 plus years that you and I last spoke is the, in 2007, the authorization for the FDA to have authority over tobacco products. And with that brought a, um, a series of controls into how it's being, in the space of how it's being manufactured. And it substantially ratcheted up the cost of the price because there's a user fee now on a pack of product that's sold. So the, the FDA collects more annually in user fees than the tobacco farmers in our state collectively uh, receive in gross receipts selling the crop. Now, we go out and borrow billions of dollars to plant this crop this coming month in, in April. And uh, at the end of October, we will have, you know, taken risk, wet, toll, you know, hopefully dodged hurricanes and droughts and the rest to make a, a decent yield and deliver it to market. Um, and the FDA will do nothing but collect uh, more, about 750 to $800 million in user fees uh, to regulate the tobacco product. And but with that has come along an evolution of how do people achieve or uh, obtain their nicotine satisfaction. So one of the big changes in the market dynamics that's impacted demand for cigarettes, conventional tobacco, is in this entire area of vape or, uh, or a non-traditional tobacco. People are getting nicotine through various other means now. By the way, nicotine is worth mentioning to any casual listener in the program. Um, it's not unique only to tobacco. Almost all of your nightshade crops have it. Nicotine is prevalent in tomatoes, potatoes, eggplant, etc. The, the root develops in the plant biologically as a natural defense. So nicotine is not limited to only tobacco. Um, and then it can be synthetically made also. What we have now is a generation of, of young people who uh, are obtaining their nicotine delivery through some other device. And I would argue that it's less uh, transparent and probably less safe than uh, the old conventional way that has been around as using the cigarette as your nicotine delivery device. And so that put pressure on, uh, downward pressure on demand for leaf and, and caused a reduction in acres. And most of this nicotine that's in something like a jewel or whatever your, your, uh, your, your, uh, retail name might be for uh, a vape uh, product out here. Most of that is coming from China and India and is largely unregulated. And so that's, a, that's one of the things that an association like ours is going to endeavor to make sure that we argue to FDA that you know, nicotine in all forms should meet a same, should meet the same high standard uh, and criteria uh, and should be transparent as to both, both its source and, and how it's being delivered. So um, those are some big changes that have happened or evolved in, in the industry. And what's allowed that is technology in the device itself. You, know, you can get a little cartridge now with, with a nicotine pod in it. Um, 
20 years ago, you and I wouldn't have even have imagined that somebody would just inhale a vapor that would have the nicotine in it or an aerosol that would have it in it uh, as conveniently as that it is done now. And the flavors in that area are really what proliferates it. Uh, you know, there's a push now to to remove menthol from tobacco products, uh, maybe to remove nicotine, an effort, a goal by the FDA now called very, very low nicotine, VLN. You know, all of this is going to drive an illicit trade, you know, the black market of these products, the cigarettes that are made somewhere else in the world uh, that escape the tax and still deliver all those characteristics. Those things uh, are going to benefit from it. Let me ask you one more question to finalize here. Yeah. And is your reaction to what you touched on earlier about marijuana? We move away from tobacco. We tell everybody tobacco is terrible for you. But at the same time, more and more states, there's a big vote in Oklahoma here soon on legalizing recreational marijuana. (laughs) Do you find uh, find this ironic, if nothing more? Absolutely mind blowing. The the irony of it is again, smoking is smoking. And nitrosamines are the carcinogens that are in smoke. And again, we mentioned earlier, bonfire, charcoal grill, anywhere that there's a com it comes from the nitrite oxide where there's a flame burning. It puts off NOX. Whether it's a whether it's a marijuana device or a tobacco device, if it's burning your NOx concern should be the same. And no one's talking about that. I'm talking about breathing the smoke into your lungs. Fair enough? That part is surprising to me. Uh, the tobacco uh, user is, um, uh, what his pleasure comes from is maybe taste of the product and uh, the nicotine effect from it, nicotine being a stimulant. It's not a class one, schedule, schedule one uh, narcotic, okay? And so inside of the legalized hemp space, there were rules governing the uh, THC, et cetera, and what we were growing here. And a lot of tobacco farmers planted some of it because, you know, their goal is to farm their land and make a, a net profit and continue farming their land. And so, so as farmers, we don't involve ourselves too much in the moral high ground of should you be growing this crop or not. If it's legal and, and the government says you're okay to grow it, let society decide whether it wants to use it or not. We're in the business of farming. You know, we're not in the business of mandating uh, people's individual behavior as, as a farm as a farm group. But it blows my mind that, uh, that, that casually people say, "Well, that's okay, but tobacco is bad." Uh, if the hemp industry or the recreational marijuana industry ever becomes uh, Fortune 100 corporations with, with billions of dollars on their balance sheet, they'll get sued as well just a matter of time and that's why people don't worry about the blueberry producer or the other you know niche crop producer because there's no money there if if, if high fructose corn syrup becomes a litigious issue it won't be corn farmers who get get involved who get uh pulled into the legislation it'll be the soft drink industry that manufactures it why because that's where the money is so Look around. I mean, the gun industry is that way. The, uh, the the hog industry is now that way. Wherever the profit centers are is where these uh, is where these ambitious zealot uh, efforts uh, seem to find themselves. Mr. Graham Boyd, I certainly <laughs> appreciate you 
telling me this from your vast experience that you've had uh, still with the tobacco growers in North Carolina, and uh, you're a strong voice for reason, in my opinion. And uh, I thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us and to bring that 1999 show that you did with us and your growers yeah. to the modern day. Well, thank you, Ken, and thank you for supporting uh, accurate uh, reporting on agricultural activities in, in a diverse way. It's, it's still our most important industry. It's our largest industry in the United States. It's a $100 billion industry in North Carolina, and we, and we, and we have to have a, a, a successful, maintain a successful uh, agricultural uh, in, industry. So thank you for that. And, and your, in your opening comment, when you mentioned that 400 years, you know, you go back to well, the founding development of this country, uh, tobacco was the means of commerce. Before there were dollars, we traded goods with England, uh, and tobacco was the exchange commodity. So it has built this country, and, and in places like North Carolina, and you've got listeners in other parts of the world who maybe never visited here or seen it, but it was significant to the economic viability uh, had a lot of heritage uh, and a lot of importance here uh, in, in our state and the neighboring states uh, for 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 many many years, uh, and it still is an important uh, cash commodity to those farmers who are who are involved and endeavored in it. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail dot com. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.